Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 90. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? It's going great, John. I'm coffeeed up as usual. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. All right, Nick. Hey, uh, this week we are doing another book review. Um, I do not remember which book we are talking about, though. This would be The Inner Game of Stress by Tim Galway, uh, Ed Haslick, and John Horton. Ah, that's right. Inner Game of Stress. Um, thankfully, I did actually read it slash listen to it on Audible, so... That's good. I'm glad you prepared. <laughs> John's not winging it this week, so that's good. That's right. Yeah, I really liked it. The texture of the cover was delicious. Yeah, you love the narration. That's what it was. <laughs> Actually, we tend to consume a lot on Audible, so this is another one of those. If you like what the book's about and you want to read it, you can DM us at Nerd Journey. Happy to gift it to you if you would like. Yeah, I, I found it useful to have both the Audible and the Kindle in this case um, because the visual representation of some of this stuff just um, was a little bit easier for me and my visual brain to understand it um, as I was reading along. You know, there's things like, okay, here's like uh, four things to remember about this. And if you are just listening to it, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult or you have to take notes, which, you know, I hate doing so. Yeah, I paused it a few times and took down some notes, so it helped me remember it better this time. This is the second time I listened to it. Nice. So I should probably say um, a little bit about the structure of the episode today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how we even got into this book, like where where that came from, um, and then we're going to go over the content. The book is in three parts. Uh, part one is the game stress, part two is art smarting stress, and part three is the inner game toolbox. And then afterwards, we're going to kind of do a summary discussion and where we ask kind of three standard questions to each other about um, what we thought of the book. And uh, so let's get into it. Um, so initially, Nick, if I remember correctly, we... Didn't this isn't the first book by this author that we listened to slash read? It was the first one is the Inner Game of Tennis, right? That's right. Yep, good one too. If uh, if you haven't read that one, it is obviously about tennis, but the Inner Game principles are still there. Just I thought it was fascinating, but I also love tennis. Yeah, I'm not like a massive tennis fan at this point in my life. I think I stopped watching or paying attention when Pete Sampras retired. So I'm a couple decades out of date. Um, but I was listening to this podcast. Uh, it's called Against the Rules with Michael Lewis. 
Michael Lewis um, is the author of a bunch of really interesting books. Um, a couple about Wall Street, like uh, Flash Boys, which was about the uh, high-frequency traders. Um, he's written a few books that got turned into movies, like The Blind Side and Moneyball, um, both of which were uh, sports-based books, um, nonfiction books. Um, but he has this interesting podcast, and the first season was about um, refereeing and how uh, our society has kind of lost touch with our uh, respect for referees. And then season two came out, and it was about coaching and the importance and significance of coaching. And Tim Galloway is a pretty well-known coach. Um, now he's a well-known business coach and life coach uh, with a pretty significant uh, consulting practice. But at the time, uh, you know, back in the day when he wrote the book, The Inner Game of Tennis, he was more well-known as a tennis coach. And uh, so basically the discussion was about um, this inner game methodology that he came up with uh, that we'll dive into a little bit. Um, it was very interesting. I think uh, we both found it uh, so. And Nick, uh, you and I both thought that with our continuing discussion about uh, career burnout, the stress that people might be feeling uh, these days on their careers with economic uncertainty, COVID-19, um, so on and so forth, that you know, people might be under more stress. And rather than just talking about it in, uh, you know, kind of roundabout like ways and, and listening to other people, we, we, uh, take more of a survey approach, right? So it's not just our opinions. It's, you know, the, the various people that we're talking to and the coping methods that they come along with. And then here was a pretty interesting book, um, specifically about stress. Yeah, and I will also add here that in this particular book, Tim Galway paired with two doctors that uh, had heard about his inner game methodology, became friends with him, and they felt like they could coach their patients using a mixture of medicine and the inner game tactics to help these people feel healthier because the stress was actually having a very negative impact on their physical health. Right. Yeah, their patient's physical health. Yeah, so they had, it sounded like almost started to build their practices around um, stress relief as like kind of a big part of um, the overall health of their patients. Um, not They didn't sound like kind of woo-woo, um, wavy hands doctors. Like I think they believed in modern medicine. They just noticed that there was like a big part of um, treating their patients that came down to, you know, the lack of attention to stress. And when they were addressing that, then a lot of the other issues started to just solve themselves. So let's uh, kind of jump into um, the uh, the book itself. Um, first of all, let's go over part one, the game of stress. Um, that got broken up into a couple sections. The first one was why stress. So in this section, they kind of talked about the physiological basis of stress, um, you know, why it happens, why evolutionarily it was pretty necessary, um, you know, kind of the fight, flight, or freeze response, and 
um, you know, like, like, again, like I said, uh, physiologically, what stress represents in our bodies. So I thought that was pretty important to just understand before we address, you know, like, why over a long term too much stress might be bad. The second section introduced like this uh, two selves idea. And this is kind of foundational in the uh, inner game methodology. Uh, Kim Galway has this idea that, you know, we have two parts to ourselves. The first one is kind of critical and telling stories. And the second one is kind of uh, just noticing things and being in the moment. And I'm probably uh, projecting uh, some of the language of another book that I read that kind of had this uh, exact same idea. Um, but um, ultimately, uh, Galway, you know, talks about the same thing. What was the language that he used? Self one and self two. Right, right. So self one is the stress maker. Exactly. I kind of wish we had a package of Mentos. And instead of fresh maker, you just put stress maker on there. <laughs> uh, yeah, my Photoshop, my illustrator skills are. You, not you should work on that. It's an idea. All right. All right. Yeah. Why, why do my job when I could be uh, picking up uh, uh, junior high level skills in Adobe? Exactly. <laughs> All right. So, part three of this uh, section um, is focusing on that self one meet your stress maker um so talking about why it works the way it does and then actually i think this section got into some of the longer term effects of of why uh how stress acts on your body um with too much of it or was that in uh the first part eh, don't remember um the next section was called gearing up and gearing down and you know what this is where the uh the long-term effects of stress was addressed I, you know through the various stories from the doctors they kind of uh, give anonymized case studies of their various patients um but in this one you know they talked about extended amounts of stress the gearing up and then the ideas of gearing down uh, that is rest, relaxation, recreation, and reflection. Um, that last thing, reflection, kind of hints at self-awareness, which is kind of the other part of the, the inner game uh, technique or uh, methodology, right? Reco recognizing the two selves and then being self-aware. Yeah. And then I guess we'll go ahead and go to part two. Yeah. So part two is actually about outsmarting stress. What can you do to essentially trick yourself into getting past it? And he talks about this inner game learning code made up of awareness, choice, and trust. And when we say awareness, what we're talking about is this non-judgmental awareness of what actually is with no distortions. Because you know as well as I do, John, the stories we tell ourselves about what's actually happening may or may not be what's actually happening and we're in a way causing our own stress right but, so that's kind of um letting self to be the driver in that in that that model of you know you can be in kind of two modes right self one 
which is generating stress by generating judgment, or self two, right, who is just kind of dispassionately observing what's going on yep. in the moment. Absolutely. And this idea of conscious choice, you know, why do I make this choice? What is it going to do for me? Am I just making these choices about things I do with my day, with my life without thinking? Where, where does this, you know, this need, this decision I'm about to make, where does it come from? And then, of course, trust. You, you have to decide where you're going to put your trust. And if you, if you combine effort and trust in yourself, that's your best chance to succeed. But you have to trust that self too, right? Part of your inner resources can give you what you need to help overcome the stress. Essentially, what the author is saying is that we have a lot of the tools needed to overcome our own problems and we just get in our own way. Yeah. He, he talks about building this tree of stability, things that keep you sane, bring you back away from the stress and again, allow self to to work. He, he actually compares our inner resources to hardware instead of software, which I thought was a great analogy for the technology professionals out there. And, and in order to build this stability, you know, if you think about it, like the, the meditation of a samurai or the calm of a samurai, you can build what's called a personal shield. And this is more like a construct representing the things that you rely on in stressful situations such as hope humor love all kinds of qualities that maybe we can't physically grasp but they're these are qualities that are they're inside us or that we rely on to to help shield off the stress and then of course this idea of being the ceo of your own life you know do do we really act like we own all the decision-making abilities for our own life because we are in control. A lot of times we don't feel like we are and we end up giving shares of the company or shares of our lives away to things or people or situations that maybe we shouldn't. I, I thought that was really interesting, being the CEO of your own life, and it made me think, hmm, maybe I don't do that very well. All of these analogies and constructs that he put together, I thought were were very interesting. Um, I don't, I don't think that it was kind of necessary to, like, visualize, you know, stability as a tree, or to think about all the important things in your life as like a physical shield, or to talk about ownership as like the CEO of a public company. But they were like apt analogies. And if you have an analogy that you're more comfortable with, then you could just use that one. But, you know, he had to pick something, right? Right. What's that What's that thing that looks like a shield on your wall, John? Didn't you make that after reading the book? <laughs> Listen. Uh, we'll, on we'll to, on to part three? <laughs> we'll take a picture and put it on our Instagram feed. There you go. All right. Yeah. Let's talk about part three. So part three is the actual toolbox or list of things that you can actively do to help uh, deal with stress as they've explained it. So, you know, part one, why, you know, what is stress? Um, you know, what are the kind of like inner constructs? Part two, you know, starting to 
map out the overall strategies for dealing with stress. Part three are the actual on the ground tactics for dealing with stress. Like, you know, in the moment, what is the thing that you can do? You know, if you could say something like, oh, I want to take ownership by being the CEO of my life, but that's not a tactic. That's a strategy, right? So tactically, what is it that Tim Galway and uh, Ed and John were talking about? So the first tactic was stop. I had to, I had to remind myself what that meant. And he actually means in the moment when you're feeling stressed, stop and take a moment and think about, you know, what, what it is that you're stressed, what it is, what is it that you're stressed about and what it is that you want as an outcome from the situation and maybe some of the words that you should be saying. So they gave like the example of, um, a person who was negotiating with an ex-partner about, uh, taxes and rather than, uh, just get getting railroaded, they said the person should actually put the person on hold, take a moment, walk away. And I think they said the person actually did this and then, you know, write out what exactly what it is that they wanted and then, uh, take, take the, the, the X off hold and say, Hey, here's, here's what it is that I want. Here's what it is that I need. And then rather than get railroaded, they got exactly what it was that they needed. Yep. Number two was being the CEO. Again, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but tactically speaking, if you were to define the mission of your life, think of yourself as a company. What does your company do? What are your policies and values? And where do you want to focus your efforts? What are your priorities? What are the inner and outer resources you have at your disposal and how are you going to use them? How are you going to allow your shares to be sold? You know, if you sell all your shares to someone else, you're no longer sole owner of the company anymore. If you give away everything, you there's nothing left for you. And I don't think they're saying be selfish, but they're just saying be mindful that, yes, you do control the decisions you make. And even when you think you don't have a choice, you, you still have a choice. And, and I also want to add here, we didn't really say this in detail at the beginning, but with each one of these tools and each one of these concepts, they give examples from patients that these doctors have met with or that Tim Galway has met with and the problems they had and how they use these tools, you know, to solve their problems. So don't just think that when you read this, it's super dry and they just go through all the concepts. No, no, no. They give you some great anecdotal stories to go along with it. Yeah, absolutely. Anecdotal, but interesting nonetheless. I really like the idea. It was like the application of the strategy of be the CEO. It was like, you have to be conscious about who you're giving shares to, right? And the demands that that allows those people or organizations to make upon you and then make that conscious decision about whether you actually want to have sold those shares or not. And sometimes you just need to buy them back. It was, it was a great analogy. So the next thing was uh, tool number three, the three control questions. So this is really interesting. Make sure that, you know, in the moment or when you're thinking about things in, in self-reflection, ask yourself, what don't I control? What am I currently trying to control? 
and what could I control that I'm not presently controlling? So this goes back to kind of active decision-making, um, you know, understanding everything about things that you're making active decisions about, things that you're making unconscious decisions about, and things that you could be making decisions about, but you're just kind of leaving. Um, really interesting, I thought really powerful as well. And, and it goes back to, you know, again, that act of um, awareness. Yeah. The next one was trying on a new attitude. And this sounds a lot like the clearness committee concept you talked about in a previous episode, mm -hmm. John, mm -hmm. where you tell a group of people about your stressful situation and you try to define or help allow them to help you define what your current attitude is. And then they suggest attitudes for you to try on and you have to try each one on non-judgmentally and okay, can I look at it from this perspective with this attitude? Does that feel like the right thing to do? Does that seem like the right thing to do? But you get to pick the one that seems better to give you, put you in the position for the best outcome. Right. And I really like the idea that you could face the exact same situation that you're in with a different attitude, but that sometimes it's helpful to have other people to suggest those attitudes. Yep. Because when you're in the moment, like all you have is what you have. You're, you're blind to the other options, right? Okay. Tool number five is the magic pen. And the idea here is, um, just writing and writing to the point where the kind of self one or the judgmental self has run out of things to say, and you get to what self two or the non-judgmental observer is, is observing about the situation. And this actually reminded me of a writing exercise. It's called free writing. Um, and we can put a link to a description here. Uh, um, I think probably Wikipedia. It also reminded me of the practice of morning pages. Um, and that came from the book, The Artist's Way. Uh, we'll put a link to that too. There's this idea that um, every morning, you know, creatives should spend time um, writing. And I, both of these practices involve writing without stopping. So you just write and write and write and write and generate content, a lot of content and writing, which is completely unusable. Um, you know, cause you you just have to keep on writing, but the idea being eventually you get to what it is that you actually want to say. And with the magic pen exercise, the idea would be eventually you get to the point where you're saying what self two is observing about the situation rather than what self one is judging about the situation. So I think the magic pen uh, process is a little bit more focused on putting oneself into a state where you can just pay attention and get into the mindfulness state of understanding, you know, what dispassionately is going on uh, rather than having to like clear the mentally clear your throat through writing and writing and writing. Um, but either way, it's all, it's all analogous. Pretty cool idea. Pretty cool process. Yeah. So the next one is transpose. 
I really like this one as a way to help us show empathy to other people. So the idea is put yourself in the other person's shoes, or at least try to, and imagine if you're in their shoes, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? And what is it you want out of this situation, conversation, etc.? Imagine you have an unbearable boss that you just can't stand or a coworker that you're having trouble with. I would encourage anyone listening to try this exercise out and see if you can put yourself in that person's shoes and it might really give you some insight and help you build rapport with that person. There could be something going on that you don't realize and you know, hopefully someone could do that for you too, but still a great way to help us stop and really think about what's happening from someone else's point of view, not just our own. Right. I really like the idea. It's like you have to assume that they don't have malicious intent, right? So if this person doesn't have malicious intent, like what is it that, you know, could be going through their mind or do I actually think is most reasonable to be going through their mind, you know? Um, not, they just want to inconvenience me, but they are worried about something else or whatever, right? Tool number seven is redefine. So imagine that, you know, one of the outputs or, you know, through self-awareness, you have some stressful words that describe how, how things are going with you. Um, Imagine that you've written those down and, you know, they are kind of at the core of what is causing you the stress. Well, think about redefining the situation using other words, right? Not unlike um, the trying on the new attitude, right? Instead of defining the situation by this word, let's define it some other way. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, the other phrase that we have down here, processes, policies, and rules in your life could be based on conditions that no longer exist, right? So, um, I think the example that they gave here was the, um, the kind of, uh, automatic way. I think it was a husband and wife were, um, disagreeing about how a turkey should be cooked, right? The, uh, one partner cut the turkey legs off while cooking and the other partner said why are you doing that and the first partner who was cooking said well that's just the way we do it in my family it's the way it's always done so they went back uh one generation and that person said yeah that's just the way that's how we cook turkey it's it's how i was taught so they went back to another generation the grandparents generation and that grandparent said Oh yeah, we we had smaller ovens back then, so we had to cut the turkey legs off to fit them in the tur- in the oven. So, you know, two generations were just doing it on autopilot when there is, you know, there's actually a reason for it originally that no longer applied. So, so maybe by examining these words that define that you think define things, you'll find out that there's a situation that maybe no longer applies, or maybe just by tweaking the definition of, you know, what's necessary, what's good, you, you, um, can figure out different words to define that situation. And this one to me screams that phrase, that's the way we've always done it. 
within an organization <laughs> so and the benefit of having fresh eyes to look at something and help you redefine a process or or definitions i like that one yeah yeah last one is the ple triangle so that stands for performance learning and enjoyment and really you need all three when you're making goals for yourself so if i have a performance goal but it's not going to bring me any learning or enjoyment, that's going to be really hard and probably really stressful. But if I have a performance goal, John, that's going to allow me to learn something new and it's going to be enjoyable, that's really a recipe for my own success and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally understand that. Cool. So that's kind of the content of, of what we uh, read and listened to in The Inner Game of Stress. Um, let's get to a summary discussion. Uh, so the question, you know, we're, we have kind of some standard questions that we're going to go to in summary discussions with books. Um, so the first one, is this a book that's worth reading to be better at handling stress? What do you think, Nick? I would say 100% yes. I really liked the tools and the, the stories, as I mentioned one of I think my favorite tool, John, are the control questions. Number three. That's that's something that I wrote down the first time I read the book. And I don't think I wrote down anything else, but I remember writing down those questions and going, Yeah, I should do that more often when I'm really stressed about something or not sure how to handle it. What I'd be curious, do you think it's the book is useful in handling stress better and what was your favorite tool? Yeah, I think that it was useful. Um, I think I alluded to it earlier. Um, there are some analogies here. Um, you know, the tree of stability, building a personal shield, being the CEO of your life. I think that they're very powerful analogies. If they don't happen to uh, be something that you kind of click with, then you can define your no your own analogies. You know, that kind of define. Uh, the same, you know, concepts, right? What is the source of your stability? You know, whatever analogy you want to use, what is the source of protection of, you know, concepts that you can build to protect yourself? Like what, how, you know, what is the analogy that you use for ownership of your time? Um, I thought um, that honestly, the, uh, the, uh, the stop tactic, the just, in the moment, it, it was interesting because it encompassed a couple different ideas, right? Being self-aware that you're stressed right then and there. Um, so it's not necessarily something that's easy or simple. And I don't think that they, they're they saying that it's easy or simple, right? You have to be self-aware that your stress level is rising, that you're feeling it, and then have the power and self-control instead of reacting to the stress to say, hey, I need to walk away from the situation and engineer a way to do it. And I think that that is very important to kind of get back to that dispassionate mind who says, here's what's going on, here's what it is that I actually need. And to go from you know a stress situation to be able to listen to that voice is not easy, but it is you know, a tool that you can work on. You don't have to be perfect at it. You know, you, when you're trying a new practice, you're never going to be good at it. You, you're going to be bad at it and you just have to get better at it over time. Just in general, I thought that the book was great. It wasn't selling 
like a series of seminars, you know, afterwards, there was no like 800 number to buy a package of like, you know, one-on-one -on -one coaching with the authors. Like there was nothing else being sold except the ideas that were in the book. I, I found that very comforting. You know, I'm, I'm usually pretty suspicious when you re I read a book and then there's like other stuff to buy, right? Or a, a group to join, um, you know, so it, there was none of that. Um, I think we naturally have uh, fallen to uh, fall upon the idea of reading the other books in the series, uh, just to apply it to like different, you know, aspects to see slight, you know, how this is slightly different from the inner game of tennis, for example, you know, to be focused specific on stress, specifically on stress. And also, you know, I thought it's an interesting book to recommend. It's, I think, difficult if somebody's saying, hey, I'm feeling stressed, and you say, well, you should read this book. It's great. It's called The Inner Game of, of Tennis. Like, it doesn't, it just feels like a non sequitur, right? Like, it, it's out of nowhere. So, yeah, I yeah. think it's worth reading. But it sounds like you're saying when I write my book about the John White School of Mentoring, I can't actually plug the mentoring school? Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying it would be a non sequitur if, if, uh, the John White School of Mentoring uh, didn't actually mention mentoring. If it was like, you know, you should read a book about the John White School of Cooking. <laughs> no, I was talking about before that where you had the beef with this didn't link you to a bunch of seminars. Oh, yeah. That and is I was trying problem. to make the really funny joke that when we, when we write down all the lessons from the John White School of Mentoring, we can totally plug it at the end. Like if you want to make a contribution, pricing <laughs> and packaging to come. That's right come to one of the, the frequent seminars. Mm -hmm. So how about this one, John? Are there situations other than career in which this book is worth reading? Oh, yeah. So I think that we approach this book with the idea of career burnout and career stress and, you know, uh, stress in your job, you know, from outside forces or inside forces. But I think that this idea of stress can come from multiple places, right? Like, your workplace might be completely calm, but you have things going on in your personal life that are causing you, you know, huge amounts of stress. Or maybe your personal life is fine, but your extended family is is causing you extreme amounts of stress. Or your your friend group, or you know, some other group that you um, socialize with or have hobbies with is causing you huge amounts of stress. So the the source of stress, you know, I think is not important. Um, I think that it's timely because uh, career burnout and stress is, is something that is being finally talked about in uh, the, IT, the world of IT. So, um, yeah, but, you know, doesn't need to be about career. It doesn't need to be about job. Yeah, I would what, agree what with that. Think? I think that from the stories in the book, it allows you to to see the different ways that stress affects people in a negative way that we don't often think about. For example, something that I'm really stressed about could cause physical problems for me. Maybe I get chest pains or anxiety attacks from it, but your version of the same thing is not near as bad, right? But it could be something else that triggers you to have back pain, for example. And I guess... I didn't think about how bad and degenerative that constant exposure to stress can be 
for certain people who just can't get past it. But what I will say is this, and I guess this goes into our last question as to whether we believe the lessons in the book. Mm. I would say that none of the stuff in here is encouraging you to shy away from the stress. All these tools are allowing you to enter stress on your own terms and deal with it. Because if you don't deal with it and you just avoid it and don't do anything about it, it's still going to be there. Yeah, it's going to keep affecting you. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, I I think I believe the lessons in the book too. Um, And the really, I think this idea, he addresses this idea that like, you know, people think that, you know, if you're not stressed, then something's wrong, right? Like, and he addresses that almost as this like, I don't think that he, he definitely doesn't say like use the phrase macho and he certainly doesn't use the phrase toxic masculinity, but I mean, both of those, you know, phrases pop, you know, popped into my mind as something that we kind of, you know, I think there's one person who was like, Oh, you're, you're, a, you know, you're a VP and you're not eating baby food yet because your stomach ulcers are so bad. Like, okay. So then you're, you're not really at the stress level that you need to be at. Like, as if that made sense, right? As if oh, yeah. being at that stress level, mandatorily being at that stress level made sense for any job. That's just a rite of passage, Sean. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> do you, one of the parts that stuck out, stuck out to me was that they did some kind of study of apes or, or something like that, and the alpha males the ones that were the most macho, aggressive, kind mm. of in that same light, were the ones that had the most difficulty recovering from disease exposure. Right. And and actually died off in the mm-hmm. uh, in the observation. And then the entire group overall did better without them because uh, they were the ones that were the source of stress interacting with everybody. Right. And the ones yeah. that like necessarily like raise the stress level in the in the group and themselves i think what we're saying is don't be that guy (laughs) yeah you you know being the source of stress or or being the person saying like hey like you know stress is necessary i mean i think stress is like evolutionarily necessary right like if there's danger you want your your body to react to like get away or or whatever, but I think, you know, as was explained in the book, like, you know, that applied to like, really like harmful, like dangerous, like, oh, like an earthquake is happening and like this rock is about to fall on me or, you know, a lion is chasing me, like that kind of stress, like that causes like, you know, you could die type of reaction, but to have that type of reaction because of like something that's happening in a newspaper is not actually helpful. Like you can't run away from it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Our bodies are designed with that nervous stress system so that, you know, you hear about people lifting cars and stuff like that. When someone's in danger, this Mm -hmm. superhuman burst of strength in certain situations, that's the fight or flight. Right. The body tries to maintain a a state of homeostasis whenever possible, but it will definitely give you the shot of adrenaline right. when when life is on the line. 
let you know with all those stress hormones, like, you know, oh, you start sweating because pretty soon we, your body assumes you're going to be running away and getting hot. So you start mm -hmm. sweating a lot. But, you know, again, you pay attention to those physical reactions or internal things and, and observe and uh, you can kind of self-correct. That's a maybe a big part of the inner game philosophy that we didn't really touch on until you know, right now towards the end of the time that we're talking about things, it was, you know, a big part of the philosophy of solving these things was um, just, you know, having that self to awareness that, um, you know, what is going on. And just by observing over time, you will self-correct, you know. Yep. And not classifying things as good or bad necessarily, just yeah. this is how it is non-judgmental observation which is not easy not easy at all yeah no. um but but very interesting and and i think i wish we had mentioned that earlier because there's a big part again of the actual solution to a lot of these problems um but you know the tactics in part three the inner game toolbox you know kind of all assumed that you know non-judgmental um observation i i should say too that like that idea of self one and self two or the right and left part of the brain or like, you know, whatever, again, another analogy. And if you don't like that analogy, pick your own analogy, right? Um, it's my brain and my heart. It's, you know, my gut instinct and my brain, you know, whatever analogy that you want to pick um, that, that you're comfortable with. I think he just says, you know, two selves. Um, kind of this like judgmental one and one that's dispassionate. All right. Anything else before we get out of here? Just a reminder, we like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. All right. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White. Ad V Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios. Adios.